0: in the name of Overhead Athletics Podcast, where we cover rehabilitation, biomechanics, human movement, and optimizing human performance. Welcome back to the podcast. I'm Max Fordell. I'm going to be hosting today. I'm joined today by Darren Smith. Darren is actually a professor of athletic training at Concordia University, Wisconsin. He also is the director of the Masters of Health Sciences program at Rocky Mountain University. And we're going to be talking today a little bit about the education system, bettering your education as a professional um, and as a student, and then also some of our thoughts about what we can potentially do in the future to enhance the learning of students and enhance the learning of future professionals. Welcome to the podcast, Darren.
1: Thanks for having me, Max. I'm
0: excited to be here. This is going to be great. Maybe, you know, just to give a little more background on you, you have, uh, you're an athletic trainer originally by trade, and now you've kind of moved into the education sector and you've accomplished your PhD and you have a master's degree in exercise science. So you have a ton of uh, education behind you and you've been in multiple universities at this point as both an athletic trainer and as an educator can you give us some insight on your experience and kind of what led you to that point?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, <clears throat> initially uh, after getting uh, board certified, I um, took a GA position to get my master's work um, paid for and done and realized um, how much I, I continued to like to learn. I think like maybe my, Oh, it was probably like my junior year. I kind of took off in undergrad in terms of I, I, I really kind of delve into stuff and, and, and really enjoyed it. So I, it kind of lit the fire at that point and I wanted to go on, <clears throat> but felt um, it was really important to be able to, um, if I was going to teach, I still needed to practice in these settings that I was at. I, I, I feel the best instructors are those that are still practicing as well as, as teaching at the same time, best of both worlds. Um, so yeah, that, um, the teaching kind of came as, as part of that um, contract, and I, I ended up loving it and just kind of stuck with it, and then any future jobs um, from there on out all had a teaching component to it and an athletic training component.
0: So I I actually went to Concordia in Ann Arbor. And so
1: we actually had
0: a few athletic trainers that also taught uh, classes almost like in an adjunct capacity. Um, And so one of the individuals at the time who was the head of uh, like the human performance division was also an athletic trainer. So um, it seems that Concordia is always always picking up the, the ATCs. For uh, education, but maybe you could provide some insight from kind of bridging that gap between being a clinician and working with athletes and working with um, patients to jumping over maybe the next day, the next hour. And now you're in the classroom educating students.
1: Yeah, it's it's busy. It is a um, it's a change from just being a full time practicing athletic trainer for sure. Um, are especially those first few years when you're, when you're teaching, you're always, you're always prepping and you, you don't have a lot of time. A lot of times you're, you're eating lunches, you're walking through the door and, and things of that nature. But, um, I, myself, I, I love it. Um, I think one of the, the cooler things about what I'm currently doing at Concordia is, is I, I work in their day clinic. And as I'm working with these individuals or my colleagues are working with individuals, if I see, you know, somebody that I can potentially bring into class and use directly in class and our athletes are usually, I haven't had anyone say no yet, um, they'll come in and and we have a live patient right in front of everyone. And we can, and we can determine, you know, what we'd want to do and how things work, if they do work, if they don't work and it's the kids get a lot out of it. Um, So I I like to kind of be able to bridge that gap. I'm, I'm not big on a lot of testing and, and um, quizzing type of stuff. I want, I want these kids to be able to apply.
0: Which is the most important component because they're going to go out there. And if there's some sort of disconnect between the education or the textbook and what's happening in real life, um, there's going to be a steep learning curve when people get out of uh, the education system into the real world.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of these kids um, or young professionals, rather, um, they've been given the information from the books, but no one has shown them, okay, here's Here's how you take and actually use it. And, and the books don't do a great job of that either. Um, I teach in, um, I teach courses in rehabilitation, therics, and um, motor control and biomechanics. And I don't work out of any one book. I work out of multiple books and I throw journal articles in there and all that just because there is no one really good source for this stuff. We, we really need something that that takes more a holistic look at um a thought process if you will as opposed to siloing here's what you do for this here's what you do for this here's what you do for this um and that'll that'll i think that'll get the workforce what they're what they're looking for i think that's the number one complaint that i hear um, as a, as a professor, when I go and talk to my colleagues, I'll say, Hey, you know, how are, how are students working out? What are you guys seeing that you don't like? And the, the, the top three are usually either, well, they're not quite sure how to communicate or um, their skills are very uh, they they're, they're mediocre. Um, and um, sh- bargaining, I think would be the third one. Um, just having that the students focus in so much on what they have been given because they have to take a board exam and they got to pass that board exam. And then that board exam becomes the end all be all. And it, you can have somebody that doesn't, I know athletic trainers that have taken that board exam three times and they're brilliant people. They're just not test takers, you know? So that's, that's kind of a bummer on our end. And we can't do a whole lot about that.
0: Right. So from the education standpoint, I'm sure we could talk all day about maybe how to improve something like a national board exam or like a certification exam to make it um, something that's actually going to represent the work that's going to be done. But from the education standpoint, what are you doing a little bit differently that's getting your students? Because I've actually had some of your students on LinkedIn. They've uh, connected with me on LinkedIn. And I think I've had actually a couple from Concordia, um, send me messages and stuff like that. And so it's kind of neat, but you know, what are you doing a little bit differently than probably the status quo in terms of getting these, these, uh, students ready for, for true life and for the real world and dealing with athletes and patients?
1: Yeah. Um, well, number one is, like I said, I try to bring in as many, um, live, Patients as as possible. Um, I teach <clears throat> from a standpoint of um, understanding strategies and understanding options. Uh, the a, a, tr- a traditional rehab class, you'll have a unit on strength, you'll have a unit on power, you'll have a unit on flexibility, blah 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 blah, and and you'll do some basics labs that applies to the body, but the kids don't know how to take that stuff. How, how is, how am I going to use this? When do I use it? How do I modify it or manipulate it? If I have a labral tear in the shoulder, how do I, um, how do I use this type of information to, to design um, a better motor control program? So what they end up doing is I, I call it monkey see monkey do rehab in which they just see somebody doing something and then they just spit it back out. Without really having a thought process, okay, we have this diagnosed injury. So, how are we going to design a program for that person in this minute? Um, tomorrow may look different than right now, and um, what are our what are our goals? So, I have it's it's actually like a four page. Um, therax sim that i that i put them through and it's it just it looks at the capacity of the movement that it is that, that you want to treat and it it breaks things down into all the component parts and um so you're looking at um the amount of time that you have in the session the healing phase the the goals of the session what type of treatment you're going to use how you're going to combine and order the treatments your um, arthrokinematics, uh, your osteokinematics, um, different types of muscle and fascial contractions, how to make things easier, harder, home exercise program. So it really it really hits everything, but they have to be able to justify everything that they're doing. And I make them actually go in and, and reference. They got to go in and, and look this stuff up in articles. So if you're going to use this you gotta be, you gotta be able to back it up. They hated it at first, um, but they, they love them now. And it's, and it's, uh, they always come back after they're, after they're done with the course and they're like, Hey, I can do this with patience now. I don't need to go back and look in the book. And I'm like, that, that's so, that's the whole point right there.
0: Yeah, and what you said is really important in regards to people actually going back and referencing um, either scientific literature or case studies, or whatever they're referencing, they're going back to something that's had some evidence towards it that's been studied. Whereas I think a lot of times what we see, and we see this a lot in terms of various types of manual therapy, where Mm -hmm. there's almost zealots for different types of manual therapy, and you get pigeonholed into one approach, and you may be doing X, Y, and Z over here, and the patient needs these other things over here, and You're never addressing that because, you know, your approach is your approach, but neither of the two approaches has had any substantial amount of literature for this individual patient or for this um, set of diagnoses. So we kind of end up way over to the one side versus getting over and looking at, okay, what does the research say about what I'm currently doing? And is it any better, different, or the same than what's going on, you know, over there, because we don't have, especially in rehabilitation, we don't have any consolidated uh, evidence on, on a lot of these topics.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I see um, uh, you nailed it. I I see quite often somebody goes and gets a new cert. Somebody goes and gets needling and now they're needling everybody that, that walks through the door, you know, and then they Mm -hmm. maybe add a, a modality to it and then, then they're done and they send them out the door um, and they don't, they don't take the entire process and say, what does this person need? They're just, they're looking short term. They don't look for a, a cause. They're treating a compensation. Um, and like you said, uh, they're, they're just, they have blinders on. So it's easy to, to forget things. And that's again, that's where I, I feel it's important as an educator and someone who still practices to have a, have a process that you go through um, that isn't um, that isn't what's the word I'm looking for. Um, It isn't created by someone else. You know, it's, it's not, uh, it's not dictated by X, Y, and Z type rules. You know, every, every um, group has got their own thing. The FMS guys have theirs and the Gary Gray people have theirs and it's, okay, so just take, take the best of everything. That's kind of how absolutely. I look at it. Yeah,
0: absolutely. Especially in, um, you know, when people are trying to actively learn and develop their own approach, having almost experience with multiple, of, multiple systems, if you will, in terms of assessment and then in terms of intervention is extremely important. And to even branch out further, Looking at um, rehabilitation as a whole, I'm sure you're going to have many of your students that work in uh, schools and work with high school athletes, college athletes, and then some of them are going to work with general population. And I was just having this discussion the other day with an individual, which was the rehabilitation field was made for the general population, which is largely sedentary, largely inactive. And then we're trying to branch it out Um, into athletics and having the same exact approach for the individuals who are sedentary may not be the best option when dealing with your elite level athletes and yes we can scale everything but it's almost in my experience there's almost a hey this is the way it has to be done these are the ways that you do things and then you're looking at it well these are completely different end goals for these two individuals. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, the, again, it just comes back down to, uh, the, the strategy and the, in the paradigm that, that you decide to work off of and okay. So healing time may be longer or different. Does the person have a lot of comorbidities that you have to work with? How, how willing are they to you know, actually do what you ask them to do. I, I also uh, for about three hours a week, I'm in a private cash clinic in which I see people. And um, I, I tell you, I love working with them. I'm, I'm working with people that are anywhere between their uh, early twenties, all the way up to people that are in their forties and fifties. And they listen, they're paying money. They want to be there versus the athletes at the university. It's mm-hmm. Darren, how much can you, you know, decrease my pain. How fast can you get rid of it in the middle of the season? And I still want to lift and I still want to play two hours in practice and we got a game and they have no recovery and it's, it's near impossible to, to, to manage things sometimes.
0: And I want to, I want to commend you because I've seen you on LinkedIn. I've seen you talking to professionals out there. Hey, if you were going to, you know, revamp a education system, a master's degree, if you were going to introduce something new into this program and this program, what would you introduce? What would you improve? And and how would you alter it to, I guess, improve the, the program as a whole, which is not something that I see done out there very often. I don't see many educators out there pulling the professionals and trying to get some input on, on how they can improve their, their product. Because in the end, that's what it is. It's a, it's a end product that these people have to come in and, and they have to be able to get what they need to get out of the program in order to be successful. And and that's what the students are expecting. And I know as a student myself, that's what I was always looking for. And so I want to commend you on that. That's awesome.
1: Well, thanks. Well, thanks. I look at it, um, just as, you know, it's, it's basic workforce development. Uh, It's done across, I don't know how many other professions and it's, you want to make the profession better. All right, let's go out and talk to those people that are out there. What are they doing in those settings Um, versus having like an athletic training? You have the National Athletic Training Association, then you have your accrediting boards. Everyone's, everyone's all separate and um, everyone's kind of got their own opinion. So it's, that's one of the reasons I, I took the job at, at Rocky Mountain. is It's a it's a post professional program. I'm not confined to have to uh, work with an accrediting agency, and I can take and work with individuals like yourself. I had I had emailed you, and and we will have to talk about that further at some yeah, point. Yeah, absolutely. Um, in terms of all right, what what do these students really need to know? Uh, higher ed. Is ridiculously expensive, and um, it's it's been that way for a long time. I'm actually waiting for it to come crashing down at some point. Um, but there's there's a lot of stuff that is unnecessarily taught or not taught in a in a fashion in which it's usable. So, you know who who best to ask? But those but those people that are out there, the um, not only working but then the employers. Who, who what kind of things are the employers? I want these types of people in, in this setting, you know? So how can you, how can you help us prepare those people? And it's funny when you, when you brought that up, I think maybe I, I got a lot of responses to that. Um, and I think only one or two were just like specific, um, specific types of certifications. Everything else had to do with interpersonal skills, critical thinking, Critical inquiry, all those soft skills that make a person a person. You know, you you know as well as I do that you can have somebody that's brilliant and really good at what they do, but if they're not a good communicator and can't aren't a good fit for for your environment, that just it makes life hard on everyone.
0: And it's tough with the interpersonal skills. I know a lot of physical therapy schools out there with which is my background. A lot of physical therapy schools do do interviews. Others don't do interviews, so they don't have any sort of regulation, or they don't even have any sort of system to monitor what type of um, person am I getting into the program. And without talking to someone, it's it's hard to know, and it's hard to develop those things in an educational setting
1: mm-hmm.
0: because that's not really what school was necessarily designed for. So people coming back with that, it's I mean that's tough on you.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's the same for you guys as it is for athletic training. I mean, you only get so many rotations, you're exposed to what you're exposed to. And, um, you know, a lot of the people that succeed, it's, it tends to be more of their natural personality that, that gets them there. Um, I was, uh, when I first started, I was an introvert. I was just very shy. I was that kid that was in the corner. And uh, the more I started working with, with more people and, I, and when I was getting some results. And for me, it was the awkwardness. I'm just like, oh, this is too awkward. I can't work with somebody for 40 minutes and not say anything to them. So uh, that kind of broke me out of my shell. But yeah, that's, that's, the, that's the biggest thing. Just um, I think the other thing as well, too, that was brought up um, is giving them a little bit more background on how the business side of things work. Absolutely. And what they what they can expect, um, you know, there are some kids, some athletic trainers going out to uh, job interviews out here in Milwaukee, and one of the questions they'll typically ask is, "All right, you know, we're a company. How do we make money?" And some people can't answer that because they haven't mm-hmm. been prepared for it. They they have no idea. All they know is their athletic training skills, and that's it. Right. Even to
0: even to take that a little bit further. In terms of school, we don't have in physical therapy, especially we don't have tracks where you can, hey, I'm going to go down the the uh, sports rehab track or the orthopedics track or the neuro track. We don't have that. So then you end up studying all of the topics and you don't ever – have time for any elective classes or any business classes or public speaking, which becomes extremely important if you wanna do any sort of presentation in the field. And it's, it's hard to necessarily address that in a program, especially like an athletic training program, especially like a PT program that has an accreditation board that's gonna kind of dictate what you have to study and um, you know what you teach in the end because you're trying to get individuals ready for an examination
1: that's it that's it and you have such little time and so much information it's like you're just touching on this touching on this touching on this and I I have to I have to constantly tell my students that if I'm when we're doing like lab-based stuff um, like I was we were going through joint mobilization last week I I had to say hey we're only going to spend one day on this this is all we got I'll, you you can only be exposed to it at this point if you want to do it more you got to do it live you got to do it clinically but we can't take the time out of class to do it because there's just there's too much to do we can't we can't miss a day you got to stay on task Mm -hmm. it's that much information
0: which makes it tougher with online learning yeah yeah but when you when you work with individuals in the motor learning I'm I'm really interested in them in your motor learning um, classes one of the biggest things that I see in working with athletes working with throwing athletes we're working on improving the way in which they throw is when I get somebody who's new someone that's an intern maybe somebody that's been observing for a couple weeks and now we're going to get them into a little bit of uh, application where they're doing a little bit of stuff on their own one of the things that I notice first and foremost is they always want to fill space fill time with with talking and it's choosing what kind of speech is is going to be most effective. So it's always instruction, like over-instruction, over-instruction. And we know with a lot of the athletes that we're dealing with and a lot of the new research, we're going to be better off if we kind of keep our mouth shut a little bit and let our drills, let our activities kind of dictate the intensity and dictate how the athlete moves is this something you're, you talk about much in your program? Because what I'm seeing with individuals who come to us, who've been through some of the, the places around the areas, that's not something that's addressed because a lot of the, the things that are going on in motor learning and motor learning education right now are research from the 90s and not really accounting for a lot of the, the new research and the new information that's been coming out in the last 10 years.
1: Yeah, yeah. So in terms of how I like to kind of go about that, um, we will, I'll, I'll break it down into um, um, volitional versus um, subconscious. So and, and we'll always, okay, so what does the person have to, I'll give an example and say, all right, person has to hit a baseball and then they got to go to first base. What are all the things that they're going to th- think about usually have a couple of ball players in the class. So they'll answer and they'll give you a couple of different things. Okay. And, and then I, I follow it up with, well, what else needs to happen to actually get you there that you're not thinking about? And so we, we, we kind of look at it from, from those two areas. Um, when it comes to designing exercise, as well as, um, utilizing and applying the research it it can be tricky just because some of this stuff is outdated Um, the probably one of the the more common types of measurements that they're going to use is is a motor evoked potential an MEP which is just the overall output leaving your brain after something, uh, after the input has gone in from a, a vestibular visual and somatosensory standpoint, brain does with it what it wants and you get a signal going back out and you get, you know, whatever it is that you're looking to do. You can think about part of that and then the other part may be automatic. So there's a lot of research that takes that measurement and they'll look at, all right, if we what happens to their motor output if we change the tempo? What happens if we use a metronome? What happens if we look at a specific type of muscle contraction? What happens if we're looking at like uh, using cross-education or inter interlimb um, development? Um, so there, that's kind of the direction that everything's going right now, but there are so many things that play into motor learning and motor development um, that we, we don't have it all figured out, not even close. Right. Um, so um, I have, I have a whole worksheet that I, that I give my students that um, it's got about like 30 or so different ways to manipulate an exercise. So I'll have uh, a person that I bring in and um, let's take an easy one here. Let's say they have like a valgus collapse in the knee right and we we want to train them but we don't want to have to give them million and one instructions in words like you're saying let's not let's optimize our time here so what on that what strategy on this sheet could we use to get the person to do that movement without having for without having to tell them too much or as little as possible to help their body figure it out and you know, whether you use like a reactive neuromuscular training, whether you add stability to something, whether you change the tempo of something, what if you do something visually or auditorily, you know, so that's, that's how, that's the approach that I take. Um, and then from there, I teach the kids, this isn't going to be any good if you don't have a pre-measure and a post-measure. So, um, even all the way down to treatments um, within a session, if I'm doing something to um, maybe decrease some neural tension and I, and I work on a person for five minutes, I want to see what I got and what I didn't get and make note of it. Do I need to move on? Do I need to do a little bit more? You know, that kind of thing. So I I'm in total agreement with you. Um, I think a lot of what goes on is they're they're trying to hypothesize everything in their brain. I need to get this to fire. I need them to do this. You got to be in this position over here. And there's so much you can do in so many different positions that you can put a person in that their body will just figure it out on their own, which is one of the best ways of doing things. And then Absolutely. they can- then they can focus on something else, you know, and you don't have multitasking going on and, and the output just ends up getting better. So I don't, unfortunately I don't see enough people doing that though. You know, I, I think there's, I think, yeah, it's, and I don't know why is it, it may not be taught. They may not think that way. I'm not, I'm not sure. I don't have a reason for that.
0: Well, I think it's more complex to think like that. It requires, more thought process um, from the practitioner than just hey I want you to do this okay change it and do this way do this way and the reason I asked you the question in the way that I did is we see that a lot of the research on motor learning is either somebody performing a skill that they've never performed before mm-hmm. or it's in presence of a neurodegenerative pathology or a neurological lesion and when we're dealing with athletes which is what I like to talk about, cause that's what we like to do, but that's what a lot of students will end up doing. Hey, I have an athlete walking the clinic, especially a high intensity athlete where movements occur so quickly. And these same things that worked for the neurological patient may not be the best option when dealing with an athlete and there's ways to potentially scale it. And some of the things hold true, but sometimes it's a completely different approach. And we're also dealing with individuals who have refined their skill to a certain level, not the individuals who came into the skill, they've never shot a dart or thrown a dart with their left hand and now they're throwing a dart and I'm trying to teach them that. That's very different than say teaching somebody different gait mechanics when they've been walking for 30 years or 20 years or they've been sprinting for since they were two years old or three years old. And now I'm trying to alter the sequence of
1: locomotion. Right, right. And, and that's where, um, alluding back to what you were saying, I, that, that's where it's, I think it's important to have an understanding of how much do we need to tell them and what kind of environment can we put them in to get the results that, that we want to get. And it's, it's, that, it's that bigger picture, it's that bigger thinking that we have to go back to as opposed to uh, this one thing is hurt. So let's just stay here and work on this one thing.
0: Absolutely. I think you nailed it by talking about how you have all of these other options. I have numerous options, probably a near infinite number of options to alter how an athlete moves by giving them different sensory feedback, by giving yes. them different stimulus, putting them in a different environment. I'm so many options, yep. one of which is giving them different verbal instruction.
1: Yeah. Yep. Yep. Um, I've had, I've had a lot of, uh, a lot of solid luck with um, a lot of visual stuff, eye placement, um, head placement, vestibular wise. Um, that stuff seems to work really, really well for the head and the neck, um, regardless of whether they had concussion or not. Um, but yeah, I like to I like to just play around with a lot of different positions. Um, I don't just need an open space. I mean, it's, it's, if, it's infinite. You don't need a ton of exercises right. at all. You only need a handful of exercises and then, all right, I got all these different strategies. Am I, am I going to use this exercise to strengthen, create more endurance, more power, or do I just need to tweak it so it's a motor control exercise just to be able to help us reestablish that so we can get that motor learning and then they can go on to strengthening or wherever you want them to go.
0: Right, and when we talk about variability and variability of training, we kind of have almost, it seems, from my eyes, two groups, where you have one group who's hyper-focused on variability, and you have another group who is very monotonous in their practice. It's repetition. You need 10,000 reps, and you're just going to continue to rep one thing, and we have this other variability group that oftentimes doesn't account for all of the variability that occurs internal variability. Hey, when you're getting fatigued, there's variability, you're not the same individual that you were 30 minutes ago, or, hey, I've added muscle mass in the last three months, I now have to establish a new coordinative pattern. And no longer am I training the exact same exercise I did three months ago, because my, my apparatus, my actual physiology and structure has slightly changed. So there's a lot of ways that um, you know, we have variability in practice and variability can be as much as changing one small thing or adding fatiguing one area of the body or adding one little bit of load or adding a little bit of time to something or taking away a little bit of time. With so many options for variability, too much variability in the beginning and too many exercises is going to be overwhelming, uh, especially for an athlete who wants something that's fairly concise. Hey, what's my thing? What do I do? I have 5,000 options out there. What are the, what are the 10 things that are going to make me better?
1: Yep. Yep. Absolutely. I could, I couldn't agree more. I, I, I think exercise is over prescribed um, and you have to, you have to take a look at you. So you have this individual coming into you, whether you have 30 minutes, 45 minutes, whatever you got, uh, from time-wise to work with them, you know, you get your updates from them, you do any kind of recheck from your last session with them. And then from there, you're, you're off. So, you know, for me, um, I want to know that that person is walking out the door with something that they didn't walk in with. So I, I, uh, you know, alluding back to your, your 10,000 rep thing, um, how do you know something's working when you're just repping, 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 repping without, without a measure. And that's, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna throw, throw a little dart at the athletic training world, because we're guilty of this, because a lot of, a lot of us have been trained to, okay, well, this person's, this person has winging scapula. So they got to do these exercises for six weeks um so just start doing them and we'll see you in six weeks and then of course the person comes back because it's a four-way band exercise and it doesn't get you where it needs to be um and they said I, well I, I did what you wanted me to do or t's i's and y's are another one um you know that kind of stuff and it's 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 just not that simple it uh it needs to be it needs to be specific to that person on that day on that time and I'm glad that you brought up fatigue as well, too, because I've, I've seen it a lot of times working with the with the motor control. I'll, I'll fatigue them out. And um, sometimes that ends up just being more of a central fatigue as opposed to an actual metabolic fatigue. And then the, the athletes looking at me going, well, Darren, I can do a whole bunch more. And I'm like, no, you're going to need a couple of days to recover from this. Mm-hmm. And I have to kind of explain it to him. I don't I know we don't have a whole big grip on, on on central fatigue and that's kind of a hot topic at this point, but we do know that it acts like a DOMS and um, can, what I've read, uh, 72 hours, it can, it can still be somewhat present. And if you're trying to rebuild a pattern, you know, that that's going to make things harder.
0: Absolutely. You can use it to your advantage certainly as well. And that's what I find that I do a lot with athletes is I'm going to introduce either a local fatigue or a systemic fatigue because I know what's going to happen. And I do it strategically, but I know what's going to happen during the season. And this is like an off-season thing. I know they're going to go out there. I know in high school baseball, I was just telling all my guys, high school baseball starting up. You're going to throw probably three times as much as you should and three times as much as what you need to throw because they're going to want you to play shortstop and then you're going to have to pitch, and now you're going to take 200 ground balls at practice and throw across the diamond. No one's ever keeping track of, of how much these athletes are actually doing, and then they're going and they're swinging on top of it, and they have to have some semblance of technique and technical proficiency, even when there's the presence of uh, global fatigue in the system. So I'll use it strategically in the offseason, but when I'm trying to improve an athlete's throw or trying to improve the way that an athlete moves early on. I think athletes, you know, they go to practice, they've taken 200 swings and now they've come into me and they're, they're wanting to improve their throw. And there is a, a central fatigue component that I'm trying to say, okay, well we got to improve the way you throw. We only have a certain amount of time to the season gets here, but, we're dealing with, hey, you know, this probably isn't the best learning environment for your system, especially early on when we're trying to teach you a new skill.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then, you know, so then that's where you got to reach into your toolbox and what other strategies do I have to keep this, you know, instead of just active rest, what what can we do? Do we need to do we need to get them in like a, a swim X? Do we want to uh, work the other side and get like a cross education um type recovery for things um do we just want to add more stability so that the person can perform the movement better and still maintain form um you know there's less reps less sets less weight i mean it's there's so many different things that that you could do um, so you don't necessarily i think a lot of people think they just have to stop and that's we need active recovery in there
0: absolutely I'm going to pivot a little bit in the discussion here, because I want to ask you, for individuals out there who are looking to pursue further education, maybe they're in their undergraduate degree, maybe there's somebody who's already in the field, but they want to take their skills to the next level, what are a few recommendations you would have in terms of furthering education, whether that's an academic program, whether that's independent study, a course, certification, what, what do you kind of recommend to those individuals?
1: You know, I tough question. I, yeah, because <laughs> because there's so many there's so many good options, um, and university is usually always the first thing that everybody thinks, and and it's it's not for everyone, and it's um, it's not just from a, a financial standpoint, but um, there are if if you're looking to get in a, another degree, you have to be very careful, and you really need to discuss with the people that teach in that program, what the classes are like, how they're set up, you want to know, you just don't want to read the course titles and say, well, this sounds kind of cool um, because it may be nothing like uh, what they have written. Um, For someone that isn't looking to invest an an average master's degree program now is going to be between 20 and $30,000. and you can, you can do them anywhere between one and a half and two years. Um, you know, I'm, I'm seeing, I don't know I, uh, about, about you, Max, but I'm seeing all kinds of, like, fellowships popping up online on LinkedIn. Mm-hmm. Come work with us for 14 weeks, and we'll show you blah, 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 blah. Now, that is, that's exactly what you and I were alluding to earlier. The individuals that do those... They're smart enough to take the stuff out of those classes. They know how to use it. They're showing these people how to be successful with it. It's the stuff that should have been taught to begin with. Right. So um, there's, I I can't mention any names. Uh, I can't think of any names directly offhand here with those. But yeah, I see like one a week at least popping up on LinkedIn. They're all over the place. Um, and I know that's also happening not only for athletic trainers, but um, a lot of PT schools are, are doing that too, to where after PTs graduate, they can go and um, sign up for X amount of credits. They can be a, a TA, and then they have somebody that mentors them from the university coming to the clinic that they actually physically work for. And it's it's like having a, a preceptor there right there, but you're at your actual job, and they're just helping you with that transition as well. Um, So that's, that's another option, Um, you know, and then there's obviously your, your coursework. Um, And, you know, I, I have mixed feelings about coursework and they're all, they're all good. I would rather go to a workshop sometimes than, than go to a symposium you know, just because I want to get a more concentrated dose on, on whatever it is that I'm learning, but I'm, I'm kind of, I, I always play devil's advocate because when you go to these things, you know, they like to sell a lot of Kool-Aid and here's our system and here's this, mm-hmm. and here's that. So um, you need to have a good understanding kind of, of, of what you're getting yourself into. And I, I don't think everybody, I don't think a lot of people look at it that way. I think they just look at it as, oh, I'll be able to cup and we i all be able to dry needle. And, um, you know, how even as it...
0: far as your master's degree, talking to looking at who the faculty is and then looking at, okay, here's what the degree is. Here's what the course are, but here's who the faculty are let's look, let's look a little bit into them. And then let's go and talk to some individuals who've been through the program or are in the program currently. And and what are they saying and and what are they getting out of it? Especially for, like you said, individuals who already are in the field, you know, they're looking to further their education. I mean, if you're looking to just put some letters after your name, I guess that's a different, a different scenario,
1: but. Yeah. Yeah. And the, when I talk to potential students um, the first question I'll ask them is, you know, where do you want to be in five years? Why, mm-hmm. why, why are you getting this degree? Um, and some of them have thought about that and some of them have not. Um, but it is our responsibility. Um, I take the responsibility in, in, in my program that to help mentor them and and help them take the steps to get to where they want to go whether that be taking particular classes that maybe we got to switch one out here or there for the individual because it's going to be more specific to a setting or skill set um, getting them in contact with the right people like we have some individuals that wanted to get into the nhl so we just had somebody graduate uh, this past uh, year that was the assistant athletic trainer for the Maple Leafs. So oh, awesome. we send send people over to him. We got a strength coach coming in um, this fall from the Dodgers. Um, we got a, an individual coming from the twins as well too. So, um, it's an understanding of what that can get you in a good program <clears throat> just won't you won't walk out of there with a lot of certifications. A lot of um, people, when they're looking at, I'm going to take a master's, I'm going to get a master's degree. They think, well, I, I should walk out of there and I should be able to do Graston. I should be able to do blah, 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 you know, and, and get all these things. Well, when you look at how much you pay for college credits, um, and it's like $400 a credit, and you're paying all this just to take, that in your coursework it's it's taking away from your coursework when you could just go and do it on your own for way cheaper you know what i'm saying um so i put we put the emphasis at rocky mountain on um everything's evidence-based but it's it's also practice-based as well too um and having that that mentoring piece to get you to to where you want to be um but the information is practical. We may talk a little about theory here and there, but it's just um, you're doing stuff like in the biomechanics class that I, I, I teach uh, those, those guys have labs every week. Okay. They have to record themselves doing some stuff. And then we look at it, we break it down. What's good. What's bad. Um, how do we fix things? How do we construct our, our own cor, uh, correctives, if you will. Um and that type of thing. So we have been doing online teaching for for 23 years now, we're, we're good at it, we got it down. Um, so um, buyer beware, when it comes to master's programs, there's a lot of them out there. And a lot of them are checking the box. So you you want to be a smart shopper, and you want to talk to as many people as possible.
0: Phenomenal advice. I just want to say, Darren, I think you're doing something very special. Looking at what you've done in terms of research in the profession and what some of your students have actually said to me, I think you've got something going that's very, very special and it's going to continue to grow. So I'm glad we had the opportunity to talk today.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much, too. Uh, same same to you as well. I'd, I'd love to extend that to you. I, uh... I use a lot of your, uh, your videos in class. We just got done I teaching, love to hear it. teaching the elbow. So I took a whole bunch of your clips. We took them down and we made a nice little checklist. So, so these guys know what to look at when someone's throwing uh, in case we got any elbow pain. So thank you and everything awesome. that you guys are doing over there. It's awesome. I love your channel. Thank you.
0: Appreciate it very much. Like. Well, like I said, thank you again for coming on. This is awesome, and we'll have to do this again because there's so much we can talk about, and so much information that you have that we can get out to to people, and maybe help some people in furthering their education, and maybe help some people in developing educational programs. I'm sure it's going to help uh, help me long term too, just hearing from from you and hearing from you know your experience in developing our education stuff at the OAI.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me know. Let's let's keep in touch and let's collaborate here. Awesome.
0: Well, alrighty. In the name of Overhead Athletics, Max Wardell signing off.